Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm Cage Kumaladun. Today we take you to the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations in Rockland, Maine, where Ambassador Laura Kennedy examines the Central Asian states of the former Soviet Union. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. It will be archived on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to hear this program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. This program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing Ambassador Kennedy today is George Look, Midcoast Forum President. I'd like to welcome everyone here and those listening to us on the stations of Maine Public Radio. This is the 443rd meeting of the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations. Today's meeting comes to you from the Elks Event Center in Rockland, Maine, and I'm George Look. The Midcoast was founded in 1983 to invite a foreign affairs expert each month to speak and answer questions on an issue critical to the formulation of U.S. foreign policy. Audios of past forum talks, information about upcoming forum programs, and information on how to become a forum member are available on our website at midcoastforum.org. We're very pleased to have Ambassador Laura Kennedy with us today to speak on the Central Asian states of the former Soviet Union. Central Asia is an area of the world that we hear more and more about, but few of us have any knowledge of that part of the world or its people. So it's nice to have someone who is an expert here to talk to us about it because it's a very important uh, um, part of the world. Ambassador Laura Kennedy is a foreign affairs expert who served for nearly 40 years with the U.S. Foreign Service. She was ambassador to Turkmenistan from 2001 to 2003, Deputy Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs from 2004 to 2005, and taught and served as Deputy Commandant at the National War College from 2007 to 2009. In 2010, she was appointed U.S. Permanent Representative to the Conference on Disarmament in Geneva and Special Representative for Biological Weapons Convention issues. She served in this post until 2013. After retiring, Ambassador Kennedy was recalled to active service with the Foreign Service in May of 2014 to serve as a Chargé d'Affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Turkmenistan. And that was a time when there was no confirmed ambassador at the post, which means she actually was in charge of the embassy there once again. Uh, she then served as a charge at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations in Vienna and a member of the Board of Governors of the International Atomic Energy Agency until 2015. Um, she also, you know, served a couple of tours in Moscow and she was in Vienna for several times. So she's, she's been around to a lot of different parts of the world and, and uh, a lot of uh, important positions. Ambassador Kennedy is an elected member of the American Academy of Diplomacy and serves on the board of the Arms Control Association, the Advisory Council of the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, and the Leadership Council for Women in National Security and Deep Cuts Commission. Laura, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the Midcoast Forum. Thank you, George, for that great introduction. Um, so I guess I, uh, I'll stand over here. And uh, you folks were kind enough to set me up with a map uh, so you can um, 
uh, you know, keep in mind where uh, Central Asia fits in, in the world. Um, but before I turn the map on, I just wanted to, one, again, thank uh, uh, George and Karen, not only for that, that introduction, but for hosting me so graciously. Um, this really is my first introduction to Maine, although um, uh, my dad, who left college in World War II to join the Navy, was assigned to a destroyer, uh, the USS Sellers. I know there's at least one Navy uh, guy in the audience. Um, sit by a kamikaze, uh, then was repaired in Norfolk, came up to Maine to patrol, and he was assigned to this destroyer, um, uh, patrolling along Maine, then it went to the in for repairs, but uh, my mother was with him, with her brand new infant, uh, along with the future Chief of Naval Operations, the great Admiral uh, Bud uh, Zumwalt, who also, whose wife also had a little baby. Anyhow, so here they were in Maine in the winter at Casco Bay, um, a wood-burning stove, and two babies, my older sister, in diapers. So that was my family's first uh, exposure to Maine. But if nothing else, uh, it exposed them to the hospitality and the, uh, the grit of uh, Maine. So what were two babies in diapers uh, uh, in the middle of winter uh, with a wood-burning stove? Um, they managed, um, thanks to all the help and support they got from their Maine neighbor. So anyhow, it's really a pleasure to be here today. And uh, one of the things, by the way, I just want to mention is um, I also work with an organization called Foreign Policy for America, which believes very much that foreign policy is not just an issue for, for think tanks in Washington, but that diplomacy does affect all Americans in so many ways, whether it's security, whether it's selling American goods and services abroad, therefore creating employment for Americans at home, uh, a whole range of issues. So it is such a pleasure, again, to come to uh, a new state for me and meet so many people who are willing to devote, uh, uh, you know, time out of their, and regularly um, with the forum, with the Camden Con Conference, to examining all of these issues that really do affect us every day, even though it doesn't seem like it on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, what happens and how we deal with it, um, my belief is, really does matter. So let me turn then to today's topic. Um, which is uh, one slice of the world out there, uh, Central Asia, which in general is fairly little known to the United States. Um, although I'm delighted in my short time here and the Mainers I've met, uh, several have visited Central Asia. One former colleague from the State Department worked there. Uh, so I hope that uh, uh, you all may be Others who haven't might be interested in visiting uh, it at some time, because uh, that's another uh, interest of mine. I've worked with both the New York Times and the Smithsonian since I've left government service to bring groups of Americans to visit uh, these countries. So let's see. Okay, so there's the broad globe, and there's these these five Central Asians. So let me let me start with a little bit of just um, context for you. And of course, when we get into Q&A, you go wherever you want. Although again, I was a former diplomat, I'm not an anthropologist or an historian, so I'm just gonna give you a bit of, of context um, for Central Asia and then shift to US policy in the area 
uh, brief history of that and try and bring it up to uh, today. Uh, and I'm glad to hear you say that you're going to have two speakers from Afghanistan because, of course, this has loomed quite large in, in recent years uh, in our interest in Central Asia. Okay, so Central Asia. So, uh, as George said, we're going to talk about the five former republics of the Soviet Union. Some people believe that when you talk about Central Asia, you should talk only about the broader concept. Those five republics, uh, you should also talk about uh, Western China, uh, Xinjiang province, which is the home of the uh, Muslim minority of China, which is a Turkic, ethnically Turkic and Turkic-speaking people. Um, the, the whole South Asian uh, subcontinent. Incidentally, it was um, uh, a direct uh, descendant of the great uh, Central Asian Khan, Tamerlane, that you may have heard about, who went south from Uzbekistan and established the Mughal Empire, the Muslim Empire in uh, the subcontinent. Afghanistan uh, obviously borders the three, uh, three of the republics, Iran, and all of these countries bordering Central Asia do have uh, uh, groups of Central Asians who over the years uh, you know, moved across the borders because, of course, over the centuries, there really were no fixed borders as we know them today. Uh, so um, here we are thir about 30 years in from independence, but one of the things that I find so interesting about Central Asia is you have a set of five states that gained their independence at the same time, so it's a sort of a testing ground for, uh, for uh, uh, forging new nations, but they're coming out of a very ancient civilization, uh, civilizations, I should say, because one of the, the chief characteristics about this area is it's very syncretic. And when I say that, I mean it's a overlay, uh, uh, over overlay, over overlay of different uh, uh, ethnic groups, religions, uh, histories, um, sort of broadly started the area. It was sort of settled by, I don't know, I guess you'd call proto uh, Indo-Europeans. Now, my husband, who's also a diplomat and knows far more about the history of languages and groups, can, can talk to you about proto-Indo-Europeans, if you like. Uh, but anyhow, a whole uh, history over the thousands of years of um, uh, uh, Persian, Turkic, Mongolian peoples, Hellenistic civilizations, Alexander the Great, came through Central Asia as far as what is today modern Tajikistan and left various city-states pop populated by his generals, uh, ancient Jewish communities. If you visit Bukhara in Uzbekistan, you still have that ancient Jewish community in, uh, in Uzbekistan. You have ancient Christian communities uh, from, uh, you know, Nestorian Christians, others. Uh, and, of course, in the modern era, uh, uh, Orthodox, Russian, Ukrainians, and so on form a distinct uh, minority, uh, as well as, as various other groups. So, as I say, a great uh, mixing group over literally millennia uh, in Central Asia. 
uh, again, setting the, the stage, uh, the population roughly is about 76 million for all of Central Asia. Uh, Uzbekistan, which is considered sort of the heart of Central Asia, that's the green one, uh, is uh, by far the largest at 34 million. Kazakhstan, the second, at 19. Tajikistan, something over 9 million. Kyrgyzstan, at 6 million. And Turkmenistan, they claim, is about 5 or 6 million. But uh, many observers believe it's actually maybe about two or three. Because one, the Turk, what's, what's typical of Turkmenistan is virtually none of the data is reliable. Uh, they don't participate in, in many uh, uh, surveys of international organizations and so on. Uh, so who knows, but officially they say it's about six million. Uh, size, you can tell how Kazakhstan in yellow dominates the area. It's the ninth largest uh, in territory country of the world. It's about the size of Western Europe. Um, Turkmenistan is second in size. Uh, that's the uh, sort of gold-colored one. Uh, it is about the size of Texas. Uzbekistan there in the center in green, as I mentioned, about the size of California. Kyrgyzstan about the size of Iowa. Tajikistan about the size of South Dakota. Now, one of the things that uh, I wanted to mention when I said that Uzbekistan was the heart of Central Asia, it also has the distinction of being one of the only two what we call double landlocked countries in the world. That means in all of Central Asia, all the five states are landlocked, i.e. they don't border on any oceans, although there are uh, two inland seas, you'll see there, the Caspian and the Azov. Uh, double landlocked means you are surrounded as well by also landlocked states. Uh, the other, by the way, is that I usually try and make people guess that, but I won't. Um, it's Liechtenstein, by the way. Maybe this will come up on Jeopardy some night, and you will know the, the answer. Uzbekistan and Liechtenstein. Um, but that's not just sort of a curiosity, because being landlocked uh, in today's world is economically quite a disincentive, because you don't have any of the, 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 the commercial uh, and, and uh, human trade and transportation links that are uh, uh, really uh, vital in today's world. And also uh, aviation rail links and so on had been quite disrupted uh, at the end of the Soviet Union. So they've had quite a few uh, strikes against them. But many people who know Central Asia uh, may not uh, have focused on it much in the modern days, but generally people have all heard that really sort of wonderful phrase, the Silk Road, um, which was basically the transit routes between Europe and China that existed for many, many years. Um, and there was not one single road, but it was a series of caravan routes that went through the area. But, um, you know, with the rise of maritime aviation and other, area, other issues, they really fell into disuse. Uh, but uh, in its heyday, I'd say between the 8th and the 12th centuries, medieval Central Asia was really one of the wonders of the world. Intellectually, uh, in terms of its art, its trade, uh, was 
phenomenal. I mean, these cities uh, rivaled the great centers of their day, such as Baghdad and Damascus, at a time when London, for example, was just a small village. Uh, but Genghis Khan, I'm sure you've heard of, swept through in the early 13th century and really uh, did quite a job on many of these great cities who really never, some of them never really recovered. Others took uh, quite a long time. Um, but let me skip forward to uh, the Soviet period. Uh, the Russian Empire, uh, not the Soviet, the, the, the Russian period, the Russian Empire had started coming through really in the 18th century, primarily through the northern part of Kazakhstan, establishing forts and so on, and then gradually started moving south. Turkmenistan was the last to be uh, brought into the Russian Empire in, after a battle in 1881, and it's still celebrated as a day of national mourning in Turkmenistan today. And as a matter of fact, uh, the president slash uh, dictator of Turkmenistan would always assemble the diplomatic court, i.e. all the ambassadors, for a ceremony on that day. And uh, the Russian ambassador usually found a reason to be sick and not attend. Um, uh, so anyhow, uh, but let's, let's skip forward to the Bolshevik period um, and the legacy that 70 years of uh, Soviet rule uh, left in the area. And in a way, they were sort of both the breaker and maker of the area. Breaker in the sense that they disrupted and destroyed many ways the uh, uh, family customs, religion, language, uh, history, uh, in a really devastating way. Uh, they collectivized and forced uh, nomadic uh, uh, herding families, which was uh, typical of the great steppe land of Kazakhstan, um, made them and slaughtered all the livestock. So there was massive starvation in the 20s. Then, like uh, under Stalin, like so much of the Soviet Union, terrible purges. Um, uh, the, uh, the gulags, there was a whole network of these gulags, the sort of concentration camps of the Stalinist period in actually Kazakhstan. Um, then in uh, the First World War, they started conscripting the Muslim citizens uh, who revolted, uh, and there were actually serious uh, outbreaks uh, um, uh, over that issue. This is before the Soviets, of course, um, but those were some of the, the real stirrings of uh, unrest in the area. And then after the Soviets conquered, um, there still were pockets of resistance uh, throughout Central Asia. And I think so the last of these rebels weren't finally put down until the 30s um, in mountainous Tajikistan. Okay, but um, so it was a mixed legacy. I mean, the Soviet Union did bring, uh, on, the, on the positive side, uh, medical care, uh, education, uh, state structures, industry. Uh, so a lot of positives. On, this, uh, on the other side of the ledger against this really negative uh, legacy of, of destroying uh, these uh, indigenous cultures. 
Um, but so let's skip forward to 1991, uh, when basically the Soviet Union collapsed. And these five states were not pressing for independence, although there had been stirrings of nationalist sentiment over various issues. Um, so when independence came, it was more thrust on them, and they were certainly not prepared uh, for it. Um, uh, but nevertheless, they seized it. Uh, uh, largely, the previous communist leaders retooled themselves, as did the communist parties, uh, to become the ruling elites. But they started off independence with... Uh, very weak institutions, both political, uh, legal, economic, and huge disruption in the economies. Um, we were talking about it before, about all of their previous links developed under Russian and Soviet times, basically were all oriented towards Russia. You know the old phrase, all roads lead to Rome. Well, figuratively, in the old days, all roads led to Moscow. But um, Moscow was no longer the imperial center. So in a way, they really had to reinvent uh, themselves. And this is where the US comes in, because we were involved from the very beginning. And we were generally the first outside country to have recognized their independence. We set up embassies in all of these countries. Um, by the way, um, uh, and we did it out of current resources. Um, which was a huge economic hit um, from which it took many, many years to recover. But we set up full-scale embassies, although oftentimes we were working out of hotels and so on until we had um, new facilities built. Uh, so we recognized them. We immediately uh, put in embassies to work with their governments. And we had, I'd say, roughly five different uh, policy goals. First of all was just the general uh, aim of, of recognizing and supporting their independence, their territorial integrity, and their sovereignty. These may seem like pretty basic concepts, but there was real concern that these fledgling states would fail, would be reabsorbed uh, into the old Soviet empire. Uh, so we also wanted to help integrate them into new inter regional and international institutions. So the United Nations, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, international financial institutions uh, on a security basis. Uh, NATO formed something called the Partnership for Peace. So there was, it, was, it was sort of a, just a cooperative relationship uh, with all of these states. Um, we didn't try to uh, dissuade them from joining other groups. Um, we simply wanted to give them other opportunities uh, and help them find their own way in the world. We didn't see it as a zero-sum competition with Russia, but unfortunately, the Russians always did because they continued to think of this area as their backyard, what they called their near abroad, their sphere of influence. So always a bit of a, you know, the US and Russia um, were always sort of watching each other fairly warily. Uh, we wanted to help them develop free markets, um, the rule of law. 
um, human rights. And this was a particularly rocky element of our relationship because, of course, none of these societies came out of uh, historical uh, democracies. There was no um, uh, Renaissance, Reformation, any of the, the periods that gave us uh, the basis for our own institutions. Uh, so that was always a, you know, uh, a, an area between us because, as I say, many of these areas, these new leaders were the former communist leaders. But we thought it was important to push these issues of uh, rule of law, not just because it's our own values, but there's a real dollars and cents value to it. When I said that dip our diplomacy is focused on supporting American jobs at home, by selling goods uh, and services abroad, um, it's hard to do that in countries that are very corrupt because there's no level playing field. Um, they will sell to whomever gives them a bribe rather than buying the, the best goods and services, which I'm happy to say, um, as a proud American, are uh, very often American. Uh, so, okay, two other um, goals I want to focus on, and that is energy. Uh, Kazakhstan has very, very substantial oil fields, and American industry was in there off the bat. Chevron invested very heavily in a major new oil field in Kazakhstan. Uh, which to this day I think is Chevron's biggest asset worldwide. Uh, ExxonMobil came in later and partnered with them. Uh, American firms provided all sorts of expertise in um, uh, oil services and so on. And our basic policy was, in terms of international energy, it was considered a strategic and not just a commercial uh, uh, issue. Our policy was, we believe that we should enhance and diversify energy resources worldwide. Because again, look what we've seen in Ukraine and Russia, where Russia established a dominant role in supplying gas, for example, to Germany, which then gives them, in some ways, real leverage. So we've always believed we wanted to, as I say, enhance and diversify energy sources uh, worldwide to prevent countries, uh, uh, in effect, um, using their energy to blackmail or uh, establish dominance over their, their customers. So Kazakhstan presented real opportunities. We got in there early and helped them develop new fields and uh, ship it outside. We built the first private pipeline uh, in the former Soviet uh, territory to get them their, their oil to export markets. Our other big energy target was Turkmenistan, which has the fourth largest uh, natural gas reserves in the world. But the problem has always been, how do you get natural gas to market? Unlike oil, which you can uh, put in tankers, in trucks, in rail cars, it's easy to move around. There's a, a uh, world market for it, but gas requires infrastructure. You've got to pressurize it. 
uh, pipe it through pipelines. So you can't just sort of ad hoc sell the stuff. And so we very much wanted to uh, um, uh, help Turkmenistan send its gas west across the Caspian Sea to feed into pipelines that would go to Europe. Uh, but there was a long-standing issue about how we delimit the Caspian Sea, that sea. Uh, Russia and Iran um, were not eager to see the other states uh, establish their own export routes. So that, that issue tied them up for years. They came to a legal resolution not so long ago, but I think behind the scenes, Russia continues to exert enormous pressure on Turkmenistan um, not to uh, um, make deals to send the, the, the gas west because um, our system is, is one that was difficult for these formerly communist states to understand, and that is we're a free market country. Governments don't build pipelines, our companies do. And he kept having this notion that we could simply build a pipeline for him. And we said, no, you have to create the conditions that will attract uh, multinational investors. Um, but as I say, a big problem was the fact that, that Russia was, um, I think, probably sending signals that uh, um, you know, we've got our eye on you and uh, watch out. Um, so what changed later, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, is that over time, the Chinese came in, who do have a different system, and the government will build the pipelines and will provide the financing. So Turkmenistan is now sending the bulk of its natural gas east to China. Um, okay, so those were the, the, the Okay, those were the top four I've just gone through. Let me get to another one, um, the last one that I'm gonna uh, focus on that was at the top of our agenda from the beginning, and this is one that George and Karen look know very well, and that is weapons of mass destruction. Um, as you may have read, at the time that uh, Kazakhstan broke, you know, was established as a modern nation, it, inher it became uh, the inheritor of the fourth largest nuclear arsenal in the world. Um, U.S., Russia, Ukraine third, and then Kazakhstan. Uh, so it inherited 1,400 nuclear warheads, about 1,000 interna inter, uh, international uh, ballistic missiles, 40 heavy bombers, uh, a, a cache of highly enriched uranium, which, as you know, is the stuff that you make bombs with. Um, so this was top of our agenda. Um, how do we transfer these weapons safely back to the country that actually did own them, and that is Russia as a successor to the USSR. Um, we wanted to get Kazakhstan as a new state, and uh, again, possessing these, these uh, nuclear, this nuclear arsenal to um, sign on to start two. Uh, and uh, also to join the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty as a non-nuclear state. The only way actually you can join uh, the Nuclear uh, Non-Proliferation Treaty is as a uh, uh, non-nuclear state. 
So after some toing and froing, we did accomplish this over a few years. Um, and although the, the Soviet arsenal was repatriated to Russia, and it, by the way, it never actually was in Kazakhstan in control. It was on their territory, but all of these, this arsenal was actually in the hands of, I guess, the Soviet uh, or the Russian strategic, uh, uh, you know, command, um, and who guarded them, who maintained them, who had all of the nuclear codes. Um, but still, if they, we hadn't arranged this, it could have been a big, you know, uh, a big problem. Um, so, uh, uh, and also, uh, so this was repatriated to actually the, you know, the, the owners, the creators of this, this nuclear arsenal. But the, the Kazakhstan also had a cache of, and George will remember exactly how many um, tons we had of this highly enriched uranium. This we actually moved directly from Kazakhstan to the United States. And, uh, you know, when we look at all the, uh, this highly, this nuclear thistle material that came out of the, the former Soviet arsenal um, about for, for, I don't know how many years, 10% of U.S. electricity was generated by the thistle material that came out of the um, former Soviet Union. And uh, there were other issues uh, involving weapons of mass destruction in Central Asia. There was a particularly nasty biological weapons uh, facility in Uzbekistan, uh, other ones, and uh, um, I won't go into it more here, but I think you can ask uh, George and Karen about that, who I'm sure will have been uh, quite, uh, I mean, George certainly, no. Uh, was, I know, um, and uh, Karen is as well. Um, so far, I haven't heard, for example, the, the Russians say, aha, how about those bioweapons labs there in Kazakhstan? You've probably heard about the way they are spreading massive disinformation about um, biological research labs in Ukraine, just as they did in Georgia. This is a very old disinformation story. So I, I mention this because who knows? Maybe uh, someday we'll start hearing about these bioweapons labs that we've uh, financed in uh, Kazakhstan. But by and large, this, this uh, um, dealing with these inherited weapons of mass destruction materials, again, including uh, nuclear, bio, biological, and chemical in Central Asia, and the other republics was a huge success story for uh, U.S. diplomacy. Um, and it was a bipartisan program. You may have heard about the Nunn-Luger program. So it was the Democrats and the Republicans working together to safely secure a lot of extremely dangerous material. Because again, the Soviet Union had fallen apart. Um, they weren't paying necessarily guards, had the appropriate security, so there was a lot of concern that these, these uh, materials could be sold on the international black market to terrorists. So this was a highly, highly successful program. Um, uh, we also, for example, helped seal the nuclear testing site where the Soviets and Russia, the Soviets did the majority of their nuclear tests, a huge percentage of which were 
uh, above ground and left a hideous environmental legacy. As a matter of fact, there's a, a new book published called Atomic Step that's a really good account of the, this terrible Soviet legacy and how the Kazakhs um, focused their energy before independence on combating this and then the role we played in helping to um, remediate um, and seal up this, this uh, nuclear test uh, facility in Kazakhstan. Um, so anyhow, these were the broad lines of our uh, policy from uh, 1991 forward. Um, and then uh, I'm going to skip forward to 2001 uh, when there was, uh, of course, 9-11. Um, with those terrible attacks emanating from Afghanistan. At that time, by the way, I was in Washington uh, because I, was, I had been nominated, but the, um, as you may have, have seen or heard, and it's something I'm very passionate about, it's gotten extremely difficult to get any of our ambassadors or senior officials confirmed. Um, not because there's questions about their character, their experience, or even uh, relevant policy issues, but for completely unrelated issues. Um, senior officials have become political hostages um, in the Senate. Um, uh, so the reason I mention that is because in uh, 2001, I had just been, you know, getting started to prepare for my uh, uh, upcoming consultations and hearings. Was, uh, you know, Turkmenistan was not at the top of anybody's list, believe me. Um, but after 9-11, because it was a frontline state, um, we had a Republican administration, of course, uh, George W. Bush, the Senate, which confirms, has the, the duty to uh, give advice and consent, um, and confirm nominees, was in the hands at that point of the Democrats. Tom Daschle was the Senate Majority Leader. After 9-11, uh, he called the president and said, what can we do to help? So they worked out a list of ambassadors uh, and other folks uh, that they felt were uh, crucial to the Afghan crisis and moved them to the head of the line. I got um, uh, a call um, from our Assistant Secretary for Congressional Relations saying, hi. Can you be ready in two hours and we'll ride up to Capitol Hill and have your hearings? I, you know, this normally takes a couple, couple months to arrange, and I said, well, sure. So I wrote out my statement, not on a cocktail napkin, but pretty close to it, um, had my hearing along with the other ones that they had deemed were uh, uh, vital to get out to, to their posts. I was confirmed by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the full Senate in 24 hours. We now have cases where officials are waiting a year. Um, and because of the Ukraine crisis, with all of the new um, priorities that we have to deal with, it's become particularly damaging that, for example, um, I'm taking a little detour from Central Asia, but to me it all ties up broadly. Um, we had holds, and that means you can't go further with the, the hearings, the votes. 
and any senator can put them on for any reasons they want. Um, so we had one senator who continued holds on, for example, our assistant secretary who deals with refugees. We have four million and counting refugees in uh, Ukraine. We have all the refugee issues with Afghanistan. We have a world today that is facing an unprecedented number of refugees and internally displaced people. And they couldn't confirm the assistant secretary who deals with refugees for no reasons associated with these issues whatsoever. It actually had to do with the Pan American Health Organization. No connection whatsoever. Um, our new special representative for sanctions policy at the State Department, same thing. Couldn't get, get confirmed. Now, we all know how important the sanctions are in our policy dealing with the Ukraine um, crisis. Couldn't get confirmed. Um, our representative to the International Atomic Energy Agency. I'm sure you saw the reports about how the Russians seized Chernobyl, um, where we had that terrible nuclear accident. They fired on the complex of the largest nuclear reactor in Europe. Um, the Zaporizhia one. So the International Atomic Energy Agency is central to trying to deal with these issues. Our ambassador there is our liaison with them and the international community couldn't get confirmed. So I just pick out three. And so they were appealing to this senator and saying, this is a crisis. These people are, are vital because of Ukraine, Russia, and so on. Anyhow, long story short is they literally just got confirmed uh, this past week. But we should not have to do this. So anyhow, that's what I'm saying. I, I get a little passionate about this stuff, so, so bear with me. And, and so it doesn't have to be like this. And I, I'm, as I say, example A. Um, nominated by a Republican president, confirmed by a Democratic-controlled um, Senate that said to the Republican president, what can we do in the interests of uh, American uh, leadership at this time of crisis? So I hope, frankly, that one day we'll get back to what should be uh, bipartisan support for our diplomacy. Um, okay, but back to Central Asia. Um, these were frontline states, um, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, directly border on Afghanistan, and these others, of course, are part of the issue. So, for example, uh, we were able to establish support bases in Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, although it was a um, formally neutral state whose neutral status had been um, um, registered with the UN uh, allowed us to establish a fueling facility for our military. So um, they were a huge help to us. Um, over time, of course, the, the need lessened. Um, and um, uh, then when, of course, we disengaged, over time, we were seen as being just that disengaged. And I realize I've gone way over. So this was sort of, uh, you know, where our sort of engagement in Afghanistan started to decline. Um, China, I already mentioned in terms of energy, came way in. Uh, it announced its Belt and Road massive investment schemes in Kazakhstan in 2013. So, you know, Russia and China are, again, the big players. 
and we're engaged, but very definitely way down the scale. But I would submit that with Ukraine, um, we need to be more engaged uh, because they're going to be watching what happens in Ukraine. And if Ukraine is reabsorbed, um, they will figure they're next. I also believe that we need to constant, we need to refocus on how we can help them get their energy to market and continue our efforts to reform these uh, new states. So sorry to go on so long. Um, that was more than 35 minutes. Uh, thank you, Laura. I know that um, we have a lot of speakers and we ask them to cover a huge uh, <laughs> amount of information in a short period of time. So we appreciate uh, your ability to do that. <clears throat> While we collect questions from the audience, I always take the opportunity to ask the first question myself. You uh, talked a little bit or quite a bit about uh, oil and gas resources in this part of the of the world. Um, but of course, we're trying to get rid of the dependence on oil and gas. Are there other resources that these countries have, or is okay. oil and gas the only things they, they have? That's a great <clears throat> question, and one that I actually um, was just resor uh, researching, because we noticed when we came to, to Maine, your um, uh, you know, uh, uh, solar panels. Um, Thank you. And obviously, renewables is going to be hugely important as we try to transition away from dirty sources of energy. Um, what I hadn't focused on before was that you need you know, the so-called rare earth minerals to uh, make these solar panels effective. And I am not an uh, engineer, so I don't really know the details. So um, China has about... I'd say probably 90% of the world's production, putting it again in a very dominant position because we need these rare earth minerals for a whole host of extremely uh, vital purposes. So Central Asia does have uh, rare earth minerals. Um, most of them haven't all been explored, but maybe as much as 10% of the world's total. And this is where America can come in because we still have the best technology for identifying mining, producing. So this is something that I hope we give a fresh look at um, Central Asia because of the increasing importance of um, rare earth minerals. But again, harking back to one of our other goals, which is to promote rule of law, human rights, and so on. American companies are not going to want to go in and invest a lot of money if they think it's an extremely corrupt landscape um, which, sadly, all of these countries do um, suffer from. But again, um, they do have that other energy resource uh, there that I think we can play uh, an important commercial and strategic role in. Um, several questions here related to the relationships between the, these five countries and, and their surrounding countries. Um, the one I think is the most general is, can you comment on the current state of relations among the Central Asian states? Cooperation, rivalry, are there, are there ethnic and religious problems, or are those all smoothed over? This, okay, great question. And here I, I, I went on for so long, and I really didn't even get to that extremely central issue. So whoever came up with that question, um, thank you. Um, we talk about Central Asia. We talk about the five stands. They actually are, you know, distinct. Um, so you really need to look at all five of them. And they also have both historic and modern sources of dissension among them. 
so that that has been was one of our original policies. How do we help these uh, these countries develop patterns of regional cooperation um, for environmental reasons? So, for example, they can deal with severe environmental problems, uh, water very much so because it's a um, you know a real deficit there. Um, climate change, security issues, trade, whole host of issues. And that has been a tough slog. But again, Uzbekistan, when I mentioned, was sort of the heart of Central Asia. It's the one that um, borders all of the others, the only one that does. Um, it was particularly prob problematic in this area because it, it, in many ways, tried to seal off its borders. It, it had quarrels and very serious quarrels with all of its neighbors. So this was right in the center of Central Asia, a big impediment to regional cooperation. But the, the, the new man who came in uh, made good neighbor policy literally the top of his agenda and has transcended, not solved, but really um, jumped ahead. So the picture in that regard looks much, much better. Um, but again, corruption is an issue because um, we've been talking earlier about the problems of trade across borders. It's quite slow in this area because they now have uh, lots of border regulations and so on, which impede uh, the, the flow of, of, of goods. And part of the reason is because the officials are taking bribes and cuts. So you really, all of this stuff ties in, and that's why, as I say, getting at corruption is a central issue, I think, around the, at home and around the world. Um, but uh, as I say, I think things are, uh, are moving in a better direction, um, whereas we actually had cases where um, Uzbekistan was threatening to go to war with Tajikistan, which is an upstream state. So the ri great rivers of Central Asia originate in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. And so uh, Tajikistan wanted to build a new dam to generate electricity because they don't have any oil or gas at home. And so Uzbekistan said, you do that, because it would mean cutting off water that comes to them that they need for um, agriculture. We're going to go to war. Um, it never quite got to the war, but anyhow, the old guy died, and the new guy, as I say, they've solved this. So, um, unfortunately, personalities do matter. Um, and by the way, I'll just say, that was also one of our, our goals, was to try and promote um, effective and fair water sharing within this, this great water deficit region. Thank um, you, yes. Um, as you might imagine, we have a, quite a few questions asking uh, very similar, similar questions. And that is, are the stands next when it comes to Russian invasions? Um, well, if, if, if Ukraine goes, I would say, I mean, my bet would be Moldova would be next. It's right next to Ukraine. The Russians already control the eastern part of it. Uh, it's the most vulnerable. But, but, um, Kazakhstan would, I think, absolutely be in the Kremlin's sights uh, because, uh, again, all of that oil and gas um, that they want to control. And when I said Central Asia, in Russian and Soviet terminology, they always said Kazakhstan and Central Asia uh, because Kazakhstan had um, 
you know, the Russian Empire had started to move into Kazakhstan in, you know, as early as the 17th century. Putin himself has said, um, uh, we don't consider Kazakhstan a real modern state. Same as what he said, for different reasons, as he said with Ukraine. Um, made references like this several times. Extremist Russian politicians have said Kazakhstan, at least northern Kazakhstan, should be ours because this was where most of the Russian settlers, starting from the 17th century, started to um, settle. This was where, during Stalin's purges, they dumped a lot of their uh, prisoners uh, from Russia, from Ukraine, and other places. They moved them away from the front. They dumped them in Kazakhstan, in many of these people's states. So um, uh, that, by the way, is one of the reasons I believe that the president of Kazakhstan, modern Kazakhstan, moved the capital from the south, which is Almaty, all the way to the north, um, to what's now known by his first name, Nur Sultan, I think precisely because he wanted to anchor the capital in the traditional Slavic heartland. Because even way back then, they had suspicions of, um, you know, uh, a resurgent, recidivist um, uh, Russian empire. Um, at the same time, when they navigate Ukraine policy, that's what they do. They have to straddle because they may be extremely fearful and resentful of Russian aggression, but they know that Russia has significant leverage over them. I didn't mention the fact that um, particularly the, the poorer states of um, Central Asia, which is Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, have the highest levels of dependence on migrant remittances in the world um, because they, uh, the unemployed, which there are many, go to Russia to work, send money home to their families. So it's been um, estimated up to 50% for Tajikistan, about 30% for um, uh, Kyrgyzstan, and even quite economically uh, dynamic Uzbekistan, maybe 12%. Um, so Russia's got levers on them. One other thing I'd say is that they're still very authoritarian societies. So they didn't like what they saw in Georgia, in um, the Georgian Revolution, in the original Orange Revolution. Um, revolutions scare them. They're authoritarians. They, they want to, you know, they want regime stability. Uh, and they also prize stability in general. So, so it was sort of a mixed message to them um, uh, in, uh, you know, in the second uh, Ukraine um, uh, revolution of, of dignity when, you know, Yanukovych ran, ran off. So they've tried to straddle it very carefully, but they have absolutely real, real concerns there. So there were a lot of questions on Russia's uh, design on the stands. Uh, there are a couple of outliers here, too, who want to know, is there any evidence that China is considering absorbing one or more of these Central Asian countries? What is their, what is their uh, attitude toward these countries? Well, I, I think that, that China's, um, at least for now, um, policy is not one of territorial or military uh, control. 
but I mentioned that they unveiled this massive investment scheme called the Belt and Road Initiative in Kazakhstan in 2013. They have poured massive money into infrastructure uh, around the world, which, which one, uh, supports Chinese commerce around the world. Uh, it's also sort of an investment in security. Who knows if they might one day seize that port. So it's, it's a concern, but these are poor nations, uh, particularly the ones in the East, so Chinese investment is attractive. At the same time, China is not popular. Um, they're taking the money, um, but there's a great, great deal of fear and mistrust of China. And by the way, keep your eye on this. Um, there is a Chinese, it's called an outpost in um, Tajikistan, which is, of course, you know, one of the ones that border on, on China. I mean, so who knows if this might not grow over, over time. Um, but the Chinese also have a strong interest in Central Asia, aside from the commercial one. Uh, I mentioned earlier the Uyghur populations. They have always been very concerned about cross-border support um, uh, of these, these, this minority. They're afraid that uh, uh, Central Asian militants um, were Islamists from Afghanistan and the area would link up and foment unrest in Xinjiang. Uh, and of course, we've seen what they've done at home to repress those minorities. But such is the power of Chinese money that the Central Asian states, whose co-ethnic, their kinsmen um, in China, um, who have been put in concentration camps, their cultural rights uh, and others um, despoiled by China, they have not been willing to openly criticize them. But on a, political, a public level, it's certainly very much resented. Well, we have some very, more very good questions, but I think we're out of time. So I want to give, thank uh, Laura for her presentation. You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today was a talk from Ambassador Laura Kennedy. If you missed part of the program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KG Kimladun. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio, 88.7.